Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we will jump into the Word today. We are studying Judges chapter 4, or sorry, 5 and 6 and Colossians 4. I'm going to be honest with you right now. I'm not going to get to Colossians. I want to just go with the Old Testament as much as I can, and I don't have all the time to cover everything. So we're just going to do Joshua's five, or Judges 5 and 6, and we'll leave Colossians 4 to you. But let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your Word. We love you. And we know that your word gives us all that we need to step into our day and honor you and glorify you. Lord, we need your word every day. And that's the whole point of this. The point of this is not to listen to me or, or some commentary that I might bring, but rather, Lord, it's, it's to say with our words and our actions that we need your word. And we know that the things that we read today have influence over us and can instruct us in our words and our actions. And we do ask that your word would bring conviction, that your word would bring encouragement. Lord, speak life to our hearts. And wherever we're asleep or we're, um, we're not alive, God, make us alive in your word, to your word and what you wanna do today in our lives. And we, we yield in advance right here and right now. We surrender to you and to what your word says. We don't just believe in a doctrine called the authority of scripture. It's, it's a way of life for us. And so Lord, give us revelation, knowledge and wisdom according to your will that we might live by it in Jesus' mighty name, amen. As we look at the book of Judges, uh, this is a really, really interesting book. Ever since I've started reading it, 21 years ago, I remember opening the book of Judges and just going, what the heck? Judges is the account of what I would say is the peril of God's people. And what I mean by that is it's a constant back and forth. And you read this throughout the Bible, but, but us as a people, I mean, prior to us, it's the nation of Israel who God chose, his first covenant people. And you see them going back and forth. God tells them what to do, shows them where to go, shows them how to live. And they constantly fall back into idolatry and all other evil ways. And Judges is just a really clear picture of what it looks like. And I think that before we judge, no pun intended, before we judge Israel, we need to look at our own hearts. We need to look in the mirror ourselves. And I pray that as we study the book of Judges that we don't merely see a people that disobeyed God and came back to God, but we also see our own selves that we can be fickle as we seek to follow the Lord. And aren't you thankful that Jesus is the once and for all sacrifice because uh, the story of Judges would continue to be written in our lives and in our nation, in our country, in our day, in our age, if it weren't for the Lord Jesus stepping into human history, doing what he did on our behalf. But Judges is an account of the peril of God's people, which we read about in Judges chapter three, verse seven, where it literally says that, the people did right in their own eyes and doing what was right or what they wanted in their own eyes actually equals doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. We find that statement being made several times in the book of Judges that actually the book is closed with that very sentiment, that same statement 
that the people did what was right in their own eyes. Apart from God, what's right in our own eyes is not right at all. The reason that the book is called Judges is simply because it's a, it's a formal account or more formal account, so to speak, of Israel's interim leaders that uh, start after Joshua dies and all the way up into the monarchy, which we're talking about the kings of Israel and ultimately also Judah and Israel, northern and southern uh, tribes. And so what we see here is that uh, in the book of starting with 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings, Chronicles, that's going to be the more formal account of the kings of Israel. This is the more formal account of the judges, the interim leaders of Israel that deliver Israel time and time again as God raises them up. According to Judges chapter 2, verse 16, the Lord raised up judges to deliver Israel. That was their primary purpose. And as long as they had peace on their borders, that judge remained basically an interim leader that would give counsel to the people and seek to, or at least for the most part, keep them in the righteous ways of the Lord according to the law. In Judges chapter 4, Israel had done evil in the eyes of the Lord again, and they had fallen into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, and they were oppressed for 20 years as they approached uh, Deborah the prophetess. And Deborah, who is talking with Barak at this point, um, she kind of pushes back on them and to their shame says, uh, they ask her to help them to be delivered from Jabin and uh, the king of Canaan and his army. And she pushes back and says, you know, you, since you didn't have a man to do this, you will not receive the honor. And so in Israel's history, we have a woman who Israel and uh, in, a, in, a form, in the form of a judge, she is a prophetess. And it's a very interesting story in their history where for 40 years we have Deborah uh, sitting in this place. And she does actually lead the nation of Israel, the armies of Israel, into victory over the Canaanites. And in Judges chapter 5, which is what we're looking at today, through verse 31, is basically a song called Deborah's Song, which commemorates the national victory. And this is not uncommon when you read about the various uh, historical accounts. Think about it, for example, in Exodus 15. I just wrote, I jotted down a few stories of where Israel was delivered and they wrote a song. That was actually pretty typical. I would, I would say in history, not only is it typical for the people of God, but it's typical also for other countries and nations. There are many songs even that we have in America that are written based on a victory and freedom that was wrought on the behalf of the people. And so we just see this is something that is fairly common, but in Exodus 15, when the people of Israel, through the leadership of Moses, go through the Red Sea on dry ground, um, right after that, they write a song, and it's to commemorate their victory in the Lord that God had given them. We see in 1 Samuel 2, Hannah writes a song. 2 Samuel 22, David writes a song. Luke 146, we see Mary singing a song. This is actually pretty typical. We get down to verse 31 in Judges chapter 5, and it says the land was undisturbed for 40 years. Isn't that amazing? So they have peace on their borders, and they have no oppression from any people group until we jump into 
Judges chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, we're just going to spend all of our time in Judges chapter 6. And I basically have to read some of this uh, just to you because otherwise I'm going to just summarize everything again and again. But here's what it says. We we go from this 40-year period where Deborah is the, that interim leader, the judge of Israel. They have peace on their borders. That's amazing. That's what that's what people want. There are that's a there's a recipe to get to peace. By the way, we, we want to remember that. Write that down. <laughs> there's certain ingredients that go into a nation obtaining peace from the Lord. Remember, shalom, the peace of God, is given by God. It's not something that can be bought or sold or acquired um, in and of ourselves. It's released and given by the Lord. And so here we read in. Judges chapter 6 and verse 1, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord again, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Now the Midianites, if you know anything about them, they're a rugged people. They're not many in number, and so typically they would have to ally themselves with another nation if they were to have any kind of victory over a people group. This is typical in their, in their history when you read about the Midianites. And so as we continue to read, you'll see that's exactly what they do to oppress the people of Israel. Verse 2, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in the mountains and the caves and the strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up with the Amalekites. So here they ally themselves with another nation to oppress Israel. And the sons of the east and go against Israel. So they would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come in like locusts for, um, for number. Both they and their camels were in, innumerable. And they came into the land and devastated. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Now, these are verses we have to remember because uh, this chapter, chapter 7 and chapter 8, is devoted to what is happening here. That's the same context within this book. We're going to read about Gideon in just a moment, and that's, this last three chapters long. But this is really important because what we read about is what oppression really looked like. Um, it wasn't just that they were killing them off. It was that they were starving them. So here Israel would go and sow into the fields, and this is a time where that's how you were to make your food. You sow in the fields, and the Midianites and the Amalekites would come prior to the harvest, and they would literally glean all the harvest and take all of their food. Israel, because they were afraid and couldn't go against them as an army, they make all of these homes and dens in the mountainside with the hope that they might be able to glean some of their fields, but they simply just can't. So the oppression is starvation, starvation and fear because Israel cannot overcome this people. And I wrote that down because that really, if you think about it, one of the, this is just me speculating, okay? But when you read about Genesis chapter three, after the fall of Adam and Eve, one of the curse one of the points of the curse, if you want to call it that, um, is that after they sin and disobey the Lord, uh, God says to Adam, right, from the, from the sweat of your brow, you shall, you shall produce uh, from the ground. And it's, it's like labor is going to move into this very intense 
uh, type of activity. Whereas before it was not so. It was it was seed time and harvest was not um, did not come with this exertion of energy, so to speak. We don't fully know exactly what that meant, but part of the curse was that by the sweat of your brow will you produce, and you will stretch forth your hand, and it will not. Uh, yield its strength to you. See, and that's that's part of what a curse actually is like, is that when you stretch forth your hand by the sweat of your brow, when you work hard and something doesn't yield its strength to you. In fact, one of the things I've taught in spiritual warfare is you know that you're dealing with something demonic when you exert this energy and you give your heart, your attention, your devotion, your affection to something and of the Lord and you yield your and it what doesn't yield to your strength like it doesn't produce anything there's just lack of production there's there's your strength your energy the exertion of your time your attention your devotion it yields nothing this is what a curse is actually like and there are under the the curse an oppression now we don't maybe we have experienced this physically maybe we will experience this physically but spiritually speaking i'm making sort of a, a point out of this, which isn't necessarily here. But spiritually speaking, this does actually happen to us. Spiritual oppression is a very real thing, even when it doesn't come in a physical form, where uh, we, do, we do see it manifest in the natural world. And so I could go on about that. I'm not teaching on spiritual warfare today. But we see that starvation um, is part of their oppression, devastation, and uh, so they cry out to the Lord as they should here in verse seven, Israel cries out to the Lord in desperation. And here's what God does. And once again, this is a very interesting protocol. God sends them right here. We read about it in verse seven. I'll just read it to you. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord on account of Midian, the Lord sent a prophet to the sons of Israel. And he said to them through the prophet, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, it was I who brought you out of Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hands of all your oppressors and dispossessed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. Listen to that. They have not obeyed God. They shall not fear the gods of the Amorites. Well, what's interesting right now is they're worshiping the gods of the Amorites, which is what has brought all of this onto them. We're going to read about that in just a second. But I thought this is an interesting protocol. We cr they cry out to the Lord for deliverance. And God doesn't necessarily bring deliverance first. And I actually think if you were to trace it throughout Scripture, I'm going to make a... I'm, 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 I'm going to make a jump here. I think that you could probably trace that what God does first is he sends his word. And that's what he does here through a prophet. Why would God not just send an answer as they, in their desperate moment, cry out to God, seek his face? Why would he send a prophet? Well, that's, that's an interesting point. He would do that because he wants to stir several things in the people before they re receive their deliverance. He wants to give them a word of victory. He wants to give them a word of encouragement. He wants to give them a word of hope. This prepares the heart for what God wants to do. Why does God need to prepare our hearts? Why does he send a prophetic word or a word or a promise of scripture first when we're in need of deliverance? Because we've been under oppression for some time. They've been under oppression for seven years. 
Seven years of oppression got them to the place where they were desperate enough to really cry out to the Lord. But it does not mean that they were willing to do all that they needed to do. So God, instead of just by a mighty hand delivering them in that moment, sends a prophet who gives a word, who prepares their hearts, stirs them up to, sit, to, to be discontent with oppression. You know, oppression has a way of conditioning us. Sometimes what will happen is we will reduce our life down to the level of our oppression. We will begin to live lesser and accept lesser than what the promise of God actually says. That's what happens to us. When we live under oppression for a long period of time, we start to deny the promises of God. We start to forget what God has done. We start to long for like a morsel rather than a feast. You understand there, there's something about oppression that conditions the mind and conditions the heart. So God in his mercy and his grace sends a prophetic word. And I would actually say that God probably does this most of the time, if not all the time. He stirs up faith. He stirs up hope. He reminds us and the prophet reminded the people of who God is, what God has done in the past and brought them face to face with their sin, the sin that brought them to the place that they're in, that it wasn't God, but it was their own sin that wrought these consequences on themselves. So he wanted to remind them of who God was, and he wanted to remind them of why they're in the circumstance that they're in. They're not just experiencing oppression because God is not mindful of them. They're experiencing oppression because they turn their back on God. And so God allowed the Midianites and the Amalekites to come in and basically take their harvest from them. The blessing of the Lord in days like this were the rains which produced the harvest and the harvest itself because food was of paramount importance as it is with us. I mean, there are people all over the world that face starvation and so their prayers are filled with uh, survival is what they're after. When they think of provision, they think of just having food to eat. When we think of provision, sometimes we pray for a job or a better job or a little more money or a, a nicer place. But um, the people in the Bible don't know sometimes the prayers of provision. We pray for prayer. We pray prayers of abundance. I think our mind has been conditioned by something else. And so we, we have to remember that when we read scripture is that provision to one person is not always necessarily the same to the other. And I think we can understand that. Well, here we read in verse 11, that Gideon uh, is called by the Lord. And this is what it says in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak tree in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite. I don't know how to say that. As his son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press in order to save it from the Midianites, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And then Gideon said to him, said to me, oh my Lord, said to him, oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, then why has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. This is very telling. And we've got to remember this, okay? <laughs> this is very telling. The prophet comes, speaks the word. Clearly Gideon's heard the word. Now, the reason that God gives a prophetic word is because he's not just going to deliver the people by his mighty hand. He's going to stir the people to be his mighty hand. See, God uses us almost all the time in terms of his plan. 
Before God gives his plan, God gives that prophetic word, that prophetic encouragement. He brings the word, he stirs us up, then he releases his plan. When he releases his plan, be sure of this, he's going to involve us in that plan. He does the same thing throughout the scripture. The disciples, he tells that Jesus tells the disciples, you know, pray to the Lord of the harvest earnestly and uh, that you might, that he might send forth workers into the harvest field. Come on, somebody. And the next verse says, and he sent them out. <laughs> so he tells the disciples to pray for something, right? He gives them a word and instructs them how to position themselves in prayer. And the very next verse, he sends them as the answer to that prayer. This is how God works. He gives a prophecy. He reminds the people of who they are, who God is. And then he calls, uh, he calls Gideon in this moment to be part of that answer. But here's Gideon's response, which I think is probably a collective response. And this is how people were thinking. The prophecy to remind them of what God had done in the past and also bring them, confront them with where they are and why they are where they are was not enough for them to get the fact that they were literally living in full-blown idolatry. Okay, let that sink in for a second. It was not enough for them to get the fact that they were living in full-blown idolatry because his response to the angel of the Lord, which is what we call a theophany, it really was the Lord revealing himself as an angel, right? This is what scholars would say. It's called a theophany. So he says to the Lord, really? This is uh, like, God, like God's with us? <laughs> if God were with us, then why would he allow all this to happen to us? If God were here, where are all his miracles? See, this denies the fact that we have consequences as a result of our disobedience. There is nothing in Gideon's theology or his response that suggests that they are responsible for the oppression of the Midianites. And that is, that is literally what happens, that we put God in contempt, we indict God and his character rather than look in the mirror and repent for our unrighteousness. This is so often what happens and we fall victim to this again and again and again. This is why we use the terminology, I'm angry with God. The reason that we get angry with God is because we don't see God. We don't see who God is. We don't see what God has done. We don't realize what God is like. And so it's so important for us to be reminded in a story like this, that this is actually like a mirror to us, that sometimes we are facing such oppression or difficulty at the hands of whatever. And it can often be the release of consequences in, in our life. And Gideon knows nothing of that. He doesn't, he doesn't have any, um, he doesn't have any mindset of that whatsoever. In verse 13, the angel says to Gideon, the Lord is with you. And, and Gideon's comment, um, reveals the mindset of Israel at that time. Why, why is God, if God's with us and why is this the case? And then we look at verse 14 to 18. This is where Gideon receives his calling to be the next judge of Israel to deliver God's people. And the first thing that God tells him to do, which is just such a wonderful thing, is to deal with the idolatry man. <laughs> he says, God is with you. And he's like, really? If God was with us, why would all this happen to us? But then the Lord, without trying to convince him, gives him his calling to become really the next judge of Israel. And the first, um, 
the first thing that he needs to do before he's going to face Midian is you need to rid yourselves. You as a nation need to rid yourselves of all the idolatry. Now, here's the thing. They're worshiping Baal and they're worshiping Asherah. And so we read about this. Um, verse 25, now on the same night, the Lord said to him, take your father's bull and second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father and cut down the Asherah that is beside it. It was a pole. It was a... Um, kind of a memorial, uh, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in orderly manner and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah, which you shall cut down. Then Gideon took men, his servants, and did what the Lord had spoken to him because he was too afraid of his father's household. He did it at night um, because he was he, he was afraid of the men of the city of what they were going to do to him. Now, this is interesting because I, I think I want to just close this whole thing by talking about idolatry, right? Because if we're going to have, if we're going to break free of any oppression over us, over our country, over our family, we've got to confront the idolatry that's in our life. Now, listen, sometimes as Christians, good Christians, we just act like, you know, um, there's nothing, uh, no, there's no idolatry in my life, uh, you know that I've not I'm not doing anything wrong per se, uh, but the fact is is that we have our own idolatry today. Let me just tell you a little bit about Baal. Baal was the Canaanite god of the elements, fire, water, and rain. He was pictured as a bull, which is why God says, "Take a bull." This is just in defying um, the the pagan worship that they were offering. And here's this is so important. So. Baal is a Canaanite god of the elements. He's pictured as a bull with lightning bolts in his hand, as a god of power. His name means Lord, Master, and Owner. And uh, we see Baal worship introduced um, throughout Judges uh, because it's it's one of the gods, of, one of the Canaanite gods. And so here we have what we have is um, God is saying, "Tear down the altar." that you all have made to Baal. Isn't it interesting, after seven years, they'll cry out to the Lord, but they won't connect it to their idolatry and tear down their own idols. I wonder if that's the case. I wonder if we need to think through what's happening in our lives sometimes, not because everything has a direct link, but what if we haven't confronted our idolatry and our praying and our crying out to God has more to do with the Lord releasing of us of oppression rather than us purifying our hearts and pruning our lives and saying, God, you're first in my life and there's nothing else that can have precedence or place like you. What if what we need to do more often is go through a house purging and see if there's anything that is in our home, anything that is in our heart, anything that is in our minds that is defiling in any way and we just purge because here's the thing, the demonic strategy is to dilute our worship. God, God understands this, but we often don't. The enemy wants to dilute our worship so that we don't exalt God, we don't praise God, we don't glorify God for anything. And then it's easy to fall into humanism. It's easy to fall into self-adoration and human praise to, to, to think about what we earn and what we get is by the work of our own hands rather than a sovereign God who has given us hands, right? And so the enemy strategy will seek to dilute our worship, bring us into idolatry. What about the idol of entertainment? What about distracting us from reality? What about the idol of sexual immorality, lust, pornography, objectification, perversion? 
What if there's an oppression that is released on our lives because we have these things still and in, in they're, they're in our lives and they're, they're just going under the radar. So we're crying out to God and we're asking him to move. But the, I just believe the Lord would call us to confront our own idolatry. Now, I'm not trying to guilt anybody that's watching this, but I'm just simply saying that I, I pray with enough people to know that I feel like I have to ask questions like, is there... Is there anything in your life? What are you watching? What are you reading? What are you, let, what are you letting into your heart? What are you letting into your mind? The foolishness that we have sometimes as people, as human beings, is that we, we, th- we think that nothing affects us. We think that like we can watch, read, listen to, put our hand to, be involved in you know, anything and call it kind of like a, a, a neutral. Um, we're not living in a neutral world, ladies and gentlemen. You know that. We're living in a world where the the line in the sand has been drawn. And this crisis that we're in right now is revealing exactly whose side we need to be on, not necessarily that we're already on his side. We might love Jesus, but Jesus is constantly calling us to a place of holiness. Whenever I talk about holiness, there are two responses that we can have. One is, God, purify my heart. If there be any wicked way in me, prune me, God. Make me more like you. Or we can have this response, well, Ben, I don't know about all that, man. That's too far. You know what I'm saying? Too far? Too far? Read the Bible. Ladies and gentlemen, we read this book where God's people fall away again and again and again. And we read this like historians. Like We read it like, well, you know those ancient people. What about us? What about us? We look at where we spend our money. We look at where we spend our time. We look at the things that we say. We look at what consumes our life and we don't call it out for what it is. It's one thing to, to enjoy something. It's one thing to, to, to participate in something that's maybe not sinful, but it's another thing to give our time, attention, treasure, talent to that way more than God and wonder why maybe our mind isn't focused. Maybe our heart isn't engaged. Maybe why we're angry at God. We're angry at God because maybe he's not in full view. I read this and I think of my own life. I don't read this and think, what a bunch of dumb Israelites. You know, I, I, I honestly, it baffles me that we don't see ourselves in this. And, you know, Gideon, here's Gideon, right? And he's saying, where's God? God tells him to do one thing, take the idols out of your life. And he can't even do it in broad daylight because he's afraid of what the people, his people will say about him. He's afraid of what his own people will say about him when he does the most righteous thing that he could do. God, deliver us from the oppression of the Midianites who are causing us to starve. And God says, God sends a prophet, gives them a word, reminds them that he's the God of deliverance. He comes to Gideon, gives him the calling to become the judge, to deliver Israel. And then he says, go tear down the idols. First thing you're going to do before you're going to take over. First thing you're going to do before you're going to confront the Midianites and the Amalekites and overcome them and me be with you, the power of my mighty hand. Before you do that, go take down the, go take down the idols in your camp. And Gideon can't even do that in broad daylight because he's now afraid of what other people are going to think of him, say to him and do to him. What if, what if that just strikes our hearts so close to home? Because listen, we can all understand and relate to that. That when God calls us to purify our lives, prune our lives, when God calls us to get serious about what he's serious about, we know that people in our own camp are not going to necessarily accept that kind of radical Christianity. Come on, somebody. 
We know that people that name the name of Christ may in fact be the first ones to call us out and say, you're a little too zealous. You know, you're a little too serious. You know, calm it down a little bit. Ladies and gentlemen, when we die, we are going to stand before Jesus. This is not a fiction story. This is not about having a nice little life. This is about having a life that is totally and wholly given over to a holy God because because of him, we have life. And we're called to give him our life as a living sacrifice. And we are going to have people say things to us about us as a result of following following him wholeheartedly. This is not about self-righteousness. This is about sacrifice. This is about giving God everything. This is about living in holiness. And this is why God prunes us. Remember we read, I don't know if you read, uh, saw my sermon yesterday about the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter one, verse four through nine. But God disciplines those whom he loves, Hebrews chapter 12, in order that we might share in his holiness. God brings discipline in our life that we might participate in being separate unto God and him alone. And it constantly reminds us that we are not living for the flesh. We are not living for the opinions of other people. We are not living that other people might speak well of us. We are living for the pleasure of an almighty God who gives his breath in our lungs. We've got to confront our idolatry. We have to confront our idolatry. If we want to have revival, we need to confront idolatry. If we want to break oppression over our lives, over the lives of our family members, our friends, our country, our region, our city, we've got to break the idolatry in our own life. That's step one. That's not step two, three, four, five. There's other things that we're going to read about that need to happen. But that is certainly step one. This is what this devotion to me is all about, is all about. And you know, thank God that Gideon did this. But uh, and then the people come out and they want to kill him. This is what happens. You read after verse twenty-five, the people call for uh, call call out Gideon's father and say, "Bring out your boy. We're going to kill him." And he says, "No, you know, let the God of Baal, whose altar was just destroyed, answer for himself." And of course, Baal does nothing because he's he's a demon God and he has no power over the living God and he does absolutely nothing. And this chapter closes, okay, by Gideon asking for God to bring him confirmation. That's this whole story of the fleece. You may have heard this uh, before and I won't go into it, but basically to summarize, Gideon, even at this point is saying, God, I need for you to confirm that you have called me to do the very thing that you've told me I'm going to do. And so they go through this period of putting a fleece out and whether it's wet or it's dry as a result of God bringing about supernatural confirmation. And God is happy to do it. God does. He actually gives Gideon confirmation. And I would say to you that the Lord has called you and I to do things and God will confirm his word to us. But we're called to be deliverers in our time. We're called to be those that rise up on behalf of others. See, Gideon, it wasn't about Gideon not, uh, it wasn't about Gideon's personal freedom. It was about the freedom of the nation. And when we read a story like this, and we, even if we project ourselves or put ourselves into the story, we've got to remember that Gideon's personal freedom was a, was a collective move on God's part to bring freedom to a nation. What if the Lord is raising up people all over the place, those that will actually do what God says, those that will confront the idolatry, those that will confirm their calling, those that will rise up and speak up in their day, and God will use them as deliverers in their family and in their city and in their region. What if that's what the Lord is doing all over the place? 
But I'll tell you what it requires. It requires a people to be holy. And that is where we get to this point in our life where we say, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. I'm going to give my life into his hands. It's for his glory. And I just, again, I, I know this world has a way of trying to get us to compromise and calm down. And I think today, one of the demonic strategies that's released against us is to just tone it down and just to calm it down and water it down and dilute the worship of God to where it's just this religion. It's just this, uh, it's just this thing that we read about um, happens again and again to God's people. But we just say no more to that. And we thank God for what he's doing in our lives. We thank God for leading us deeper into his holiness that he might use us in a mighty way. And so let's confront our idolatry and see the revival in our day that God intends. Amen? I'm going to pray that God gives us that strength and that warrior-like mentality to confront sin, to confront idolatry, to confront wickedness so that we might raise up, rise up in righteousness in our day. So Father, we thank you today for your holiness. We want to participate and partake of your holiness to be a part of your plan in the world. And so, God, we pray that you would reveal any idolatry in our lives that is that has taken that first seat. Lord, there's one thing about neutral things that we can enjoy or, or even have in our lives, but they cannot be first seat. That's when they become idols. And so we just say no to that. We give you our hearts. We give you our homes. We give you our eyes. We give you our hands. And we ask you, Lord, that you would bring us to a place of utter conviction. And Lord, remind us that you're our deliverer. And so whatever, in whatever way, in whatever place we need deliverance, we just ask for it right now. I pray over my friends that are watching this. Bring deliverance into our lives that we could be alive and awake at this time of our life to be used by you for your holy purposes. That's what we desire right now. And we thank you, mighty God, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.